Welcome back to KTWB. We got a caller on line one. Caller, what's up? Yeah, uh, I was just wondering, are you guys gonna play any more uh, Ryan Cedarquist hits? I haven't heard them for a while. Caller, you are in luck. We got a new one dropping you right now. Ten thousand feet, you know, here we are, above all the clouds and below all the stars. Whoa, ten thousand feet, you know, here we are, above all the clouds and below the stars. Whoa, L E A D B I. We got a new hit for y'all here at KQWB. It's from Ryan Sinterquist, all the way from Lundell, Colorado. Yeah, bruh. Yep. We behind the sky. Give me that high mountain vibe. Cloud City, baby. Joke is that fortune goodbye. John Winthrop said it best where a city on a hill. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Skiologians, the show where we merge theology with sports with current events. If you like those three things and you like seeing where they intersect and how they intersect and discussing it, then you are in the right place. If not, you might want to just take a seat, uh, turn off your radio here, Shovel Lake Public Radio, and wait for the next Cedar Skier podcast to arrive. That's where we discuss more just sports, sports research, skiing, all those types of things. But here on this show, we like to uh, we like to discuss a little bit deeper things, and uh, we like to think presuppositionally. We like to dive into the meat of the matter, so to speak. And today we have a great show for you. Uh, first of all, hope. Is it something you can just practice like a left-handed layup? Apparently, that's what research is telling us. What are the implications of that? And then, of course, we have maybe the ultimate... Uh, convergence of the three topics we just laid out, basically theology, sports, and current events, politics. Are we going to boycott Beijing? What does that have to do with um, the MLB already leaving uh, the All-Star Game in Georgia and moving here to our home state in Colorado? And Christians being persecuted in China? All those things need to be discussed. We've got clips from the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki's news conferences that we're going to play. And uh, you better stay stick around to listen to those because I wasted about 45 minutes this morning <laughs> trying to record them and it looked like it was being recorded and then it sounded like it was um, the dark monster from like Global Tron some far away you know when you know when audio sounds like that's what it sounded like so we had to redo that and figure out a different way of doing it so anyway all that and more today on the skiologians podcast thank you for joining us here on Shovel lake public radio all right so our first article that i think we need to touch on uh this this is kind of crazy news this comes from the new york post it says, China brainwashing Christians to renounce faith, report finds. This is April 7th, Sam Dorman reporting. It says, China is attempting to brainwash Christians by holding them in mobile transformation facilities, according to a new report. Radio Free Asia relayed stories last week from a man given the pseudonym Li Yuis, who said he was beaten in a windowless room for nearly 10 months. Lee said he was detained after authorities raided his house church in 2018. There were no windows, no ventilation, and no time allowed outside, said Lee. I was given just two meals a day, which were brought to the room by a designated person. He said authorities, quote, threaten, insult, and intimidate you. These were United Front officials, men, women, sometimes unidentified, usually in plain clothes. The police turned a blind eye to this. You have to accept the statement they prepare for you, unquote. Lee added that if you, quote, 
you refuse, you will be seen as having a bad attitude and they will keep you in detention and keep on beating you. Unquote. His fellow inmates, he said, were released on bail and had taken part in church-related activities. The suppression affected both Protestants and Catholics, with priests disappearing for five, six, even ten years at a stretch. Last week's report was just the latest to shed light on alleged abuses at the hands of Chinese authorities. A BBC report on the Uyghurs included alleged former detainees who claimed horrific abuses like raping women with electrocuting instruments. And so I think we, at this point, if, you've, if you're involved in the news, you have heard of the Uyghur Muslim women. That's what that's referring to, the BBC report. Now we have this coming out about um, the brainwashing facilities. And actually, there was another story I had read over in, in kind of my week, week-long prep leading up to our show. Um, now I don't have it linked here in my prep. That's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think I had a different article that described more in detail some of the brainwashing. Can we get that? Is that around? Oh, yes, here it is. Oh, so this one on discern has a little more. Same sources. We have Lee Uis quoted in here. Um, uh, this one's from April 3rd. Jeff Swindoll reporting Christians. Uh, China reportedly imprisoning Christians in mobile torture and brainwashing facilities. So remember, these the, the idea here, it's a transformation center. Um, and additional quotes from Lee. So he says it was a mobile facility that could just set up in some basement somewhere. It was staffed by people from several different government departments. It had its CCP, own political and legal affairs committee working group. They mainly target Christians who are members of house churches. And just a little background, it says Christianity is legal in China under the CCP's Chinese Catholic Church and the so-called, quote, Protestant alternative, Patriotic Three Self Church, also run by the CCP. Many Christians reject both and instead participate in house churches, which are often raided by CCP officials. And then he goes on, talks about the eight or nine months he was mentally tortured, physically beaten, verbally abused. Um, And he says... There is no time limit for the brainwashing process. That's Lee. You can't see the sun, so you lose all concept of time. I couldn't sleep. After you've been in there a week, death starts to look better than staying there. I bashed myself against the wall to self-harm. Um, I think, you know, I don't know. I listened to Dividing Line with James White, and he talks a lot about the CCP and how Christianity is the ultimate enemy of their government because uh, the whole foundational aspect is this idea that the government is God in CC in the in the CCP viewpoint. You know the 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 highest order there. Uh, uh, I almost wanted. I don't have my Greek and polished up well enough to say the phrase White always uses, but essentially Caesar is Lord. Right. This idea that are you going to bow the knee to Caesar or bow the knee to God, the one true God. And in uh, obviously in the first century, I think first century, right when when Christians were persecuted at the highest levels, they were being posed with this choice to bow the knee to Caesar or worship God. And often they they um, in choosing to worship God, they gave up their life. And we're seeing that in China now. Clearly, this the extent to that is is quite similar. Instead of being thrown to the lions, literally. Um, we have Christians going into house house churches, right, trying to worship the Lord, but being ultimately it's costing them their lives or or severe torture and attempted brainwashing. The government wants wants people to recognize them as Caesar, as Lord. Um, and so that's the the scary part. I think if we're if we're 
if we're going to try and connect this to us here, is this would be why we don't want to become uh, like the CCP in our form of government. So, and and I'm seeing quite honestly this what the what the COVID pandemic has done a little bit. It, it, it has placed too high of a trust in the highest forms of government. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I I think even I have fallen prey to this. Maybe you have as well. But basically, we as citizens have sort of recognized the government when they speak, they're, they're kind of authoritative on manners. So when the government says, Look, it's way too dangerous, right? You need to, you, we need to put all these mandates in place. It's for your safety. There's an element of trust where we got to go, okay, yep, yep. Okay, we, we trust you. We believe you. This is for our safety. Come on, guys, let's all band together. And that's what we saw last March, right at the beginning of the pandemic. We were all on board because we didn't know anything. So, not knowing things, we kind of had to all just lock it all down. And I think what I'm sort of recognizing now is if, let's just say in two months, um, you know, the administration kind of comes forth and, and states come forth, governments come forth, leaders come forth, and they say something like, we don't need masks now, we're all vaccinated, it's okay, you're safe to go about the ways that you've always gone about doing things, restaurants, eating, games, whatever, school. If they said that, I know even in my heart I would go, well, gee, the government said it's okay, so it must be okay. Like, I, I, I do trust they're their, their authoritative on this manner. I trust what they're saying. Right. And and so this debate isn't over whether or not they're right or not, or whether you should have masks or not, or whether we're overstretching these mandates. That's not what it's about. It's about the whole idea that have you noticed our society putting a little more trust in what the government says? And I think that's a scary start to um, bowing the knee to the government, essentially. Like they love the fact that when they say something, you just go, they said it, therefore it's true. Think about it. The presuppositional Christian, that is essentially what we believe about the Bible. God says it, that's good enough for me, right? That is, that, that's a right, uh, that is a right way of viewing epistemology because God is the creator of the universe. He's the objective Lord of all. When he actually does speak, that is enough. And that's what we, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When God spoke, it was it was evident to them, intuitive. They didn't have to like debate, well, gee, I wonder if I can trust what God is saying about this earth. No, no, no. It was in that perfect setting. They recognized innately, obviously, the derivative nature of their existence. The things they were looking at, they recognized that God had created them. The things he was saying were true. They weren't like trying to challenge them and put themselves as the authoritative, autonomous judge of right and wrong in those in that situation. In the Garden of Eden, it was very clear to them and very obvious to them that uh, they were derivative, and so if what God says goes, they, they were not they were not questioning that. And so, from a Christian point of view, that's how we view our epistemology. But now, look at on the secular side, what really happens is don't question the government. What they say is good enough. They don't have to justify themselves, right? They don't have to give a reasonable defense for what they're saying. What they are authoritative in their nature. They are self authenticating, and that's that's essentially what we have been led to feel and believe. And I think it's kind of crazy that, you know, I'm someone who studies these things, theology, all that stuff. And even I'm kind of swept away along with it. Like, oh yeah, if the government says I don't need a mask when I walk into the 7-Eleven, then I probably don't need a mask, right? Uh, 
well, hold on a minute, right? That, and that's how it's kind of been traipsed around. So all that's to say that I think this, this shift of government becoming God is what we see in the CCP here, and that's why they're shutting down Christianity. So how does this relate to our topic of the Olympics about skiing, all those things? Well, let's get there. What we saw in the United States here recently was the decision for by Major League Baseball to move out of, uh, move the All-Star game out of Georgia. And there's, there's quite a bit of fuss about this, uh, certainly because, I, I mean, obviously the idea is Georgia is making voting restricting. That's very undemocratic. Uh, they're putting restrictions on voting access. That's not what we're about. So let's move the All-Star game out of, out of there because that's just not right. Georgia, <laughs> Georgia, how dare you? Um, and so if, if that were true completely, even if that were true completely, I should say. Let's say Georgia was saying it was putting massive restrictions on voting. Like they weren't they said something like, if you if you make less than one million dollars a year, you can't vote. Like let's just say something was crazy like that. Or they said you can only vote if you're a white male over the age of 35. You know, let's just say they did that. Um should the MLB move their all-star game out of Georgia, even on account of that? Um maybe. Maybe then there would be a debate. I think the heart of this, the problem almost is, first of all, is Georgia really becoming more restrictive? And I've got an article here that's that would suggest possibly not. They moved it into Colorado, and the title of this article is, Colorado and Georgia have similar voting laws. <laughs> Joel Abbott reporting. Uh, Colorado has similar laws that are more restrictive even in some cases. Colorado requires voters to show identification when voting in person and requires first-time mail-in voters to show photo ID. Georgia requires identification for in-person voting, but under the new law now requires it for all mail-in voting. If Georgia residents do not have a photo ID, they can provide the last four digits of their social security number, a utility bill, bank statement, paycheck, or similar government document with their name and address. Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia pointed out that Georgia actually has a longer time frame than Colorado for residents that wish to cast their ballot early. It'd be 17 days versus 15. Um, <laughs> and the quote from Kemp is, Georgia has 17 days of in-person early voting, including two optional Sundays. Colorado has 15, he said. So what I'm being told, they also have a photo ID requirement. So it doesn't make a whole lot of, a, a lot of sense to me. Kemp also blasted President Biden, who supported MLB's decision to move the game, for appearing at the NCAA championship game in Indiana, which Kemp called the birthplace for the photo ID requirement. So um, this is all kind of stemming. Biden was in an interview on ESPN. He essentially um, uh, supported, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get this really technical because we're going to listen to some clips from Jen Psaki, but supported the... Um, the movement of the players, if they so wish, to boycott Georgia over that. He supported that. This led to the MLB deciding to move their All-Star game out. Now, the MLB decided that because of a group of 50 players in the Players Union kind of coming and saying, this is what we think. 50 out of the entire league. So that keep that in mind, too. You know, essentially 50, 50 players representing the MLB said, yeah, let's, we want to move this this out of Georgia. Biden goes on ESPN, says, I, I, I support the players for doing for for standing up for what they believe in, basically. And that sort of support uh, gave enough motivation to the, the league to go, yeah, we're going to do this. 
Um, and so I think there was some mischaracter. To be fair, there's some mischaracterization because a lot of people have been going, well, Biden told the MLB that they should get out of Georgia. And that that isn't true. But you could also recognize, I think, to be fair on the other side, that Biden did support that move in general. Because by saying, yeah, if the players want to get up and leave out of here over this issue, they sh- I support that. You really are supporting the move for that organization to leave. You're, you are supporting a boycott of that location over the issue of voter suppression. Um, and so I think my big issue with this as I've been dwelling on this and, and now reading this article about here's what's going on in China, by the way. And we didn't even read the Uyghur Muslim story. Okay. Now that's what's being reported in the news today over the potential Beijing 2022 Olympic boycott, right? People are, that is the issue. They're not talking about the Christians being persecuted. So just want to keep that in mind. But essentially it's like, here we have in Georgia, a voter problem and we're boycotting because of that. And here we have in China, a much, much more horrific and horrendous um, thing going on at the hands of their government, which is obviously much less democratic than the state of Georgia, which exists within the United States. I mean, <laughs> for for someone to say like, well, anyway, we won't even we won't even discuss. That's not worth it. Okay, so China, if you think Georgia's not democratic and running on democratic ideals, um, what do you think of China, CCP? Anyway, the the potential question being raised at hand is, well, if you're going to boycott that or support that boycott. What about Beijing 2022? And originally, the stance coming from the White House was, you know, that's a United States Olympic Committee issue. We'd have to work with them. And uh, over the last last few days, it's sort of gone from, oh, crap, we better actually pose a position of, yeah, we, we might boycott China's. We're thinking about it. Okay. And <laughs> I, I think I want to get to that. So should we? But also this idea that I think it is kind of uh, indicative of a larger problem. The fact that what we see in our government is is not coming out and saying, making a stance on an issue. But they say, yeah, we're thinking about it. Yeah, we're going to wait. You know, we want to what we have. Uh, we, we're not sure about the timeline yet. There's a lot of that posturing of wait and see. And, and just hold on, let us, let us make a statement in a minute once we've gathered our thoughts. On the one hand, that's okay. D- gather your thoughts on this issue. Let's, let's talk about it and make a statement for it. But what I'm seeing, the trend is indicative more so of the fact that there isn't an objective standard by which this administration is calling these shots. Because if there was, they would obviously come out right away and go, well, of course we're boycotting Beijing. I mean, come on, we're boycotting Georgia over voting. So yes, you th- we're absolutely going to boycott the Olympics. No question. Our standard is human rights, freedom, and equality. And both Georgia and China have infringed upon that in a way that is egregious. So we're, we're boycotting both. Well, of course they didn't do that. Because they're not operating by an objective standard of what's right and wrong. They're operating by a um, what's blowing in the wind back and forth of what, is, what are we going to get the most uh, lashing lashback from society for. So, yeah, we got to wait and see about this whole Olympics thing. Okay, so that's one kind of issue. But what about the actual potential? Would we boycott Beijing? And Ralph is saying that I have to play the clips we worked so hard this morning to, to to drum up. Okay, so 
first, before we get to that, let's play the clip, the series of what's been going on in case you've missed some of these. This is Jen Psaki when asked the question first about um, the All-Star game. You know, the president had voiced his support for MLB making a decision about the All-Star game in Georgia. Um, I'm wondering, when can we expect a final determination from the president about the United States participating in the Beijing Olympics, given that he said the Chinese president doesn't have a democratic bone in his body? Well, I think the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, would play a big role in... Uh, in- on Major League Baseball here in the United States. He actually didn't, I, I think, I don't know if you heard the the answer, the question, the answer that happened a few minutes ago where we addressed this, and I answered the question. So, uh, and I give a little more context, but maybe you weren't paying attention to that part. This, <laughs> that that made me so frustrated, honestly, when I heard this for the first time. Um, no, no, you didn't really address the, the real issue at hand. Obviously, this question is pointing out this double standard. Okay, and and Saki does does Jen Saki kind of remind you of that bratty girl that you knew in high school that kind of I don't know just just play that last play the last bit you'll see what I mean. The question, the answer that happened a few minutes ago where we addressed this, and I answered the question. So uh, and I give a little more context, but maybe you weren't paying attention to that part. Yeah, the condescension there. I think that that's the thing that sticks out to me. Oh, maybe maybe you weren't listening to that part. Maybe you weren't listening to that part. Um, but yeah, the, no, the the whole problem here is that we have not addressed the contradiction here. The, and, and we're pointing out and um, exploiting the fact or exposing the fact that there is no objective standard here for what you're making your decisions on. Let's go to later on in the week. Uh, confusion yesterday about the U.S. policy with regard to the Beijing Olympics next year. Uh, is it the U.S. policy now that American athletes will participate in those Olympics? And is the U.S. government going to encourage American spectators to travel to China to, to view those games? Well, these are the Winter Olympics of next winter, I should say. So sometime away as it relates to the second part of your question. And certainly our hope is that we are at a point where enough people across the country and hopefully around the world have been vaccinated, but we will rely on health and medical experts on that particular piece. Our position on the 2022 Olympics has not changed. We have not discussed and are not discussing any joint boycott with allies and partners. We, of course, consult closely with allies and partners at all levels uh, to define our common concerns and establish a shared approach, but there's no discussion underway of a change in our plans regarding the Beijing Olympics from the United States point of view. In case you couldn't tell that she was reading answers there, she was absolutely reading completely. We watched the videos. Thanks. These videos coming to you, video and audio clips from Rev.com. Rev is a transcription service. By the way, uh, interesting side note here. I once, w- uh, maybe I'm still actually technically employed by Rev. What what you do if you work for Rev is you are you receive these audio files and this really, it feels like it's like the dark web and you get these audio files, you don't know what they're from they're, and you, you can choose like thousands of different files. You listen to them and then you type on their software, you transcribe them and it's actually, hold on. Well, we haven't worked out the kinks here in the Shovel Lake Public Radio studio. My dog, Ajay, just grabbed some toilet paper from who knows where. Yeah, she's laying down at my feet now. Welcome to Shovel Lake Public Radio. Where was I? Rev. Yeah, so then you type them a million miles an hour. You get you, you get really used to all those shortcut commands so you can pause the video, speed up the video, slow down the video, uh, write and make your corrections. You type things out, and then you get paid by how many words were in the document, basically. 
And it sounds kind of fun. It is kind of fun if you're like me and you could type, you know, 75 words a minute or whatever. And it's it's it, the physical movement of it is really awesome. But the thing is, is they have these deadlines for them too. And so if you miss the deadline, let's say let's say you're you have a 10,000 word document and you've been working on it for four hours. It's due at 9 a.m. When it gets to 9:01, if you have not submitted it, bam, everything's gone. All your work's gone. You don't get paid. Um, and that happened to me once. And I was uh, I was living in Maine and I had been working on this document. I put in like three hours of work on it and then took a whole day off and came back, you know, like an hour and a half before the deadline. And I was working frantically and, and increasingly frantically when I got within like 15 minutes to submit, I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I was like sweating, uh, and didn't make it missed out on everything, you know? So it was probably four or five hours of work, but potentially would have been, you know, 75, 80 bucks and it was gone. And it was, it's kind of unfair because some of those things too, they, they, um, uh, interestingly, you know, I, I got lucky once where a, a person was talking very slowly. It's not by words. It's by time. It's kind of a com. It's an algorithm of sort of both. But anyway, some of them are harder than others. Some people talk really fast like I am right now. Some people talk really slow. And clearly, it's very easy to transcribe. You could do an, an hour in literally like an hour of real time if you're fast enough. You can just type one time through. A lot of times, you have to replay things and listen really closely. And of course, if you make mistakes too, they sometimes don't pay you if you make too many mistakes. So anyway, Rev providing these files for us. I don't know how I found it, but they've got all of them on Rev.com, all of the... Uh, you can watch the transcripts. You can listen back to the clips as well. So interestingly here how they uh, – Saki postures a position of, you know, by the way, this is a long time in the future. It's like, yeah, we know. Okay, COVID better be gone by then. So, you know, we get – that's not really the key here. The encouragement about the athletes, however, is completely unrelated to COVID. Assuming the Beijing Olympics happen – would you decide to boycott them over the obviously undemocratic nature of where the country's at? I, I kind of wish Saki would have said something like, you know, instead of saying, well, we, we hope by that time travel and COVID will be gone and blah, blah, blah. She would have been like, well, hopefully by that time, um, the Chinese government will consider um, giving freedom back to people and not persecuting uh, Christians and Muslims. But we'll see. And then if they do, then we'll decide to go. That would have at least been more consistent, wouldn't it have? I don't know. And one final clip here. This is uh, regards back to the MLB in Georgia. And, you know, did Biden think of the economic effects of it? Here we go. Voiced his support uh, for moving it. Does he have any regret now that by doing that, by adding his voice, it may have contributed to the environment where MLB makes this decision? And then there are these economic consequences to people in Georgia when he and the vice president were there and couldn't do the car rally. And I mm -hmm. talked about wanting to thank Georgia. Georgia's been important to the president and vice president electorally. Um, is there a sense of regret that perhaps he tipped the scale uh, with his rhetoric, uh, even if he doesn't have a direct uh, cause and effect? Well, he was answering a direct question during an interview with ESPN about the opening day baseball, something everybody, mo not everybody, most people in the country appreciate and enjoy. And he was simply conveying that he would support that decision if that decision was made by Major League Baseball, just like he would support decisions made by private sector companies. We're not standing here and calling for companies to boycott. Um, that's not what our focus is on from the White House. We do believe that um, the focus on Georgia and is a reminder that, and should be a reminder, I should say, that um, this is much bigger than Georgia, that Georgia was just one of the first states to act on a concerted effort to use easily disprovable conspiracy theories to fuel their attempts to make it even harder for eligible Americans to vote. But according to the Brennan Center, 
Uh, as of March 24, 361 bills with restrictive provisions have been introduced in 47 states around the country. So this is not just Georgia. This is something we are seeing a prevalence of this, a pattern around the country of, uh, you know, an effort to make it more difficult to vote. Um, and so I guess my take on this all, guys, honestly, is I, I do think you should have to play by the rules, so to speak, to be able to vote. I don't think we should... We want to have fair elections. We want to have everyone who is an American citizen have the ability to um, to follow the democratic process and to be able to vote. Does, shouldn't matter what race you are, what social economic status you are. I don't, you know, obviously none of that should play a role. But you should still have to prove that you're an American citizen in some way. And and I think you know, obviously the, the ID, uh, voting on time, whatever it is, like our concern as Americans should be that elections are fair and honest. And part of that is that you need to um, be a real person who is an American citizen and show that. And so maybe what needs to really, the issue I don't understand, you know, like why don't we just make those avenues to get IDs more accessible? Why isn't that the thing they're arguing for? Okay, here's this, like the, the, the standard of having an ID I don't think should really be that debated. Okay, and I and I understand some people are like, well, you know, not everyone can get a driver's license, and right by that, by by saying you need to have a driver's license, you're already putting some sort of an economic standard. But that's not the only ID that that can be required or that that can pass. So it's not like it's not like you have to own a Bentley to be able to vote, you know. Um, so I don't know. I, I I do think there is something to be said that if you're not willing to jump through the loops to which are not a lot of loops to get an ID that and, and become eligible to vote. Are you someone that that we want to have your voice being heard anyway? I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying like we should have some sort of a ability based standard, but but there is a little bit of that too, where it's like, I mean, if you're not even a real person, should you be able to vote? <laughs> no, of course not. And and I just don't think the loops are that convoluted that they should prevent people altogether from being able to express their democratic right. And it seems to me like the argument sort of is in the wrong place where they're saying they should be saying maybe we should try to or at least on the Democrat side, they should be maybe arguing for making um, accessibility to those IDs more more obvious. And and I think that exposes what their real agenda might be as well. Um, so that that's that whole issue. Um, but but I, I want to point out, I guess from a ski-based side, we have the Beijing Olymp- Winter Olympics. That's when our U.S. cross-country ski team would be participating. Now, our ski team is made up of a lot of people, I think, who the Georgia move, the MLB move, that whole situation, they would absolutely stand by the players who are boycotting that state. Largely because most of our cross-country ski team members are uh, probably identify as Democrats. So they would be totally for that just on the only basis being that the Democrats are. I don't think they've thought about like the standard as much, or they certainly haven't thought about the inconsistency and the ramifications. So even if there's skiers who are like, yeah, I love the fact that, you know, these players are leaving Georgia because they're standing up for the, this, this attack voter suppression. And and that's not good. Um, And again, if that was the case, then I think they'd have a, a justified reason to support that move by the players. But it's not really the case, and this is a this is a state within our own country. But let's just pretend that it is okay, skiers. So if you're saying that um, sta- that boycotting over voter suppression is a worthy cause, do you think boycotting the Olympic Games over uh, persecution of Uyghur Muslim women and Christians in China, uh, not to mention uh, scores of other undemocratic um, 
happenings from the CCP that exist in that regime? Do you support boycotting over that? Or are those things not as important as voter suppression? You know, I think this is an issue. I, I, I think a statement needs to come forward maybe then if, if we're going to make all these statements over things, right? Where's Matt Wickham and Chris Grover on this issue? Where is our U.S. ski team going, you know what? There's no way we're going to Beijing over this. Not a chance. We're not taking our team there because they do this, 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 this. And if they want to go, you know what? It's separate politics and sports that need to be separate. Well, then why are you getting behind athletes who are, who are, who are doing just that? They're merging the two. Um, I, in some ways, I think, you know, I'm a little bit on the fence one way or the other, where sometimes I do think it's appropriate to, um, allow a sporting event, you know, uh, the opportunity, a platform to make a statement. I think there's some, some good to that, but I also do think that if an athlete wants to just go, look, I'm, I'm just doing my job as an athlete. I'm going to go to Beijing. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to compete. I understand that there's all these awful things going on, but I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to uh, merge the two things at, at once. In other words, I'm, I'm just separating them. I'm here competing. I'm going to go home. I'm just going to do my job. Okay. Kind of like a Christian has to do every day when they work in the public school system. Okay. Because we would have absolutely reasons to stand up and protest of going, e you can't do this, right? Like you're making me teach things that are completely against my beliefs. And sometimes we have to just separate it, go, this is what I do for my work. And um, I don't believe in this, or I have to say this. It's just what I have to do. Um, and, and we're talking now in a situation where you're not compromising and completely complete totality your beliefs i wouldn't do that if it came to that i would i would have to stand up and go you know what um my salvation and eternity is is worth more than my house and my car payment and my job and my income and i know that's crazy and dramatic but but a christian should be ready to say that uh but anyway uh, yeah where's where where are the athletes coming out right now winter olympic athletes i i, I want to see them i don't see them anywhere so we're calling for that right now, a little bit of hypocrisy maybe, or at least maybe they haven't thought about this, the consistency of your thinking if you're on this side. And most people aren't thinking, trying to be consistent all the way across. They're just reacting to the, the swaying social tides. And that's why Georgia's, oh yeah, I'll hop on that bandwagon. Oh, well, if you do and you're going to be consistent through and through, that means you should be hopping off the Beijing bandwagon. Okay. And quite frankly, if I was in their position, this might be kind of a hard one to know what to do. If I was uh, contending for an Olympic gold medal, I knew I was going to be going to Beijing, but I also was well aware of Christians being persecuted and my, I myself am a Christian. I actually might consider boycotting Beijing because I do think that platform would bring awareness to that issue um, in a very unique way. So if there was ever a time, athletes, where you wanted to stand up for something, this could be it, to be honest. Well, we were hoping to get this all in one show. April 9th is when we started recording, but here we are, April 17th, and we didn't finish the show. Big big weekend last weekend, just to update you. Uh, sorry, loyal Skiologian fans, but yeah, my wife and I went to Grand Mesa to get in some really good cross-country skiing, and, um, and then I went directly to... Uh, Broomfield, Colorado for a week. I was testing my students there, so I had to be in person, and and I uh, was unable to do any show editing here since all of the materials are on the GarageBand on my home Mac here in the studio, Shovel Lake Public Radio, cedarskier.com. But here we are back, and uh, this did allow me some extra time to uh, not, not necessarily just think on this show, but also uh, another story popped up coming out of China, coming on this same story. I heard this yesterday, actually, on the Clay Travis show, and 
was kind of unaware of the situation really going on. So let me let me try and give you some backstory. So on the Clay Travis show, Clay Travis comes on. He goes, this. He basically does his whole spiel about. I can't believe this is not a major story on major media outlets, which it you know isn't a shock. The the left is really. If you think if you think that um, major media news, general news is biased, um, don't worry. It's the same in sports too. So there's very few news outlets in sports that are willing to. Um, say things that kind of cut against the status quo grain right now that is that has been uh the 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 loudest voices um so clay travis is is a guy who used to work for espn actually at one point but he has a lawyer background and now has his own um his own show outkick the coverage so he's basically the ben shapiro of sports talk radio and he's he's all right actually I, i there's uh, we could go on a little rant if we wanted to about pros and cons of Clay Travis, and I could kind of—I feel like I could make fun of him for some things, and definitely could criticize him for some things too. But I certainly appreciate his intensity and his willingness to not care about um, fitting into the narrative that's just being just so pushed in all journalism. So, anyway, he brings brings to our attention this story about. Um, Chinese sports brands and Nike. And if you know anything about Nike, you know that Nike also is is uh, like Amazon, like Coca-Cola, typically will fall far to the left on political issues and has done some strange things that are inconsistent as a result. But they recently decided to uh, not purchase... And this is again coming from Clay Travis, uh, but I, but I think that once I tell you all the stories, that you, you don't have to worry that I'm like lying or making these things up. Uh, but Nike decided to not uh, not use cotton and products. I think maybe just cotton, but but all products probably produced in the Xinjiang region of China. Um, and what's happening in Xinjiang? That's where there are detention camps where Uyghur Muslims are being forced. Uh, there's forced labor. They're producing Chinese cotton and other products that have been used by um, Nike, H and M, large Swedish brand, um, and so it's 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 kind of a human rights issue, right? Xinjiang, the region, Uyghur, Uyghur Muslims under the control of the CCP are being forced to produce cotton and then selling it super cheaply to these these companies. Nike's put a stand down and said we're not going to do that anymore, and which is admirable. Finally, they're kind of like, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna stand up for these social issues here in America, where, as Travis points out, um, the the country that is given the most freedom by far and most opportunity by far and protected uh, human rights by far more than any other nation, and that's just. You can't even argue it. Argue that the the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, that our founding documents, go ahead and read them. They they acknowledge the um, inalienable rights of us all. Really baked into a uh, with a biblical presupposition. To be honest, I, I know people today wouldn't really probably want to dive into that. But the only reason you can say a human has value inalienably, you know, uh, is is because of what the Bible says about what a, who a human is made in the image of God. The founders absolutely understood that, and they totally understood what they were 
writing and what it was based in, they, they knew they had justification for saying, look, look around. We all have value as people and here is why. And they pointed to the Bible. That They knew that. They knew that there was a logical connection there. And uh, that's why John Adams said this country with its documents would not be able to function by, with a people not religiously grounded in the truth of the Bible. So just going back, okay, <laughs> wow, now off on a trailhead, but so uh, off a rabbit trail here, there's this, this situation, right? And, and Travis is like, good job, Nike. You know, <laughs> we're really happy. Well, what happened in China was some unrest. And and I don't know citizens if they were all really this way, but what, but what the Chinese news is saying is people, there was consumer backlash, basically. People start boycotting Nike. They're like, oh, you don't want to you know, use our products here that we're creating from slave labor. Well, we're not going to buy any Nike things. And two brands actually doubled down. Anta and, um, I don't know what the other one was offhand. Anta is the Nike of China, basically. That's their huge shoe company. And so they doubled down. They say, we're going to use cotton from the Xinjiang region and we're going to kind of stick it to you, Nike. We're going to keep our shoes super cheap. And and apparently people have been buying Anta products like crazy. Um, so the stunning part is that a Chinese-based company is in full support of this slave labor and the oppression by the CCP to keep that going. And, and, um, and also, you know, who knows really what the truth is, is how the, how the people in China think about this. I mean, if, if the citizens of China are like, yeah, Nike, you're stupid. Like we, we love our system of government here. And we love the fact that we're, um, we've got, you know, the Uyghur Muslim people by the millions um, in detention camps, <laughs> and there's genocide and slave labor, and they're producing our the products I'm wearing on my feet. We love that, so you can go back to America if you want to do that. We're not going to buy your stuff. If that's the case, that's a little strange, but I also think, is that the case? Um, is that news being reported to us accurately? Of course, the CCP controls all the news outlets there as well. Well, the reason I bring up this point, and I think this is perhaps the most um, talk show worthy part of this, is what about NBA players who back in, I don't know if you remember this, back in the um, summer and fall, Houston Rockets general manager, uh, Daryl Morey, is that the name? Daryl Morey? Let me just, I, I should look that up just to make sure I've got that got that right. Uh, Daryl Morey, yeah, he was the one, actually this was back in Twitter in 2019, voiced his support for the Hong Kong protests. And Hong Kong, it, it just the social issue there, they were fighting for democracy um, and under rule from China. And so he is, uh, this is back when, you know, NBA players even were, were kind of like, trying to voice support for freedom, uh, Black Lives Matter, all those things. And, and Maury kind of points out that we should be we should be voicing our support for the, the protest for democracy in Hong Kong. And what happened was is China just went berserk. They, they said, you need to fire 
um, Daryl Morey, first of all, NBA, and they canceled viewing of the NBA Finals games. Um, there was all this unrest. A week later, Morey stepped down as general manager. LeBron James, that's when he had those awkward, he wasn't going to comment on it. Like, I don't, I, I'm not going to say anything, even though, you know, he had been very vocal about all these other human rights issues. And, and maybe he really didn't know what was going on. And that's fair if he's, you know, he had kind of made a claim. Like, I, I don't really understand the situation. But, <laughs> but, but to that, I would say, oh, and you understand all of the, uh, complex underworkings of all the other political issues you talk about so freely. Come on, that's not true either. So <laughs> it's not like it's not like LeBron James is a scholar in um, American political issues, American economic structures. He gets that so well. He can he can speak to those issues just freely and off the cuff. But when it comes to uh, you know the CCP and Hong Kong fighting for democracy, uh, he just doesn't understand that. Yeah, give me a break. Well, anyway, so that whole situation went down and and it was there's this there is this two uh two-faced you know inconsistent response coming from the NBA and Adam Silver the the um commissioner of the NBA and again for those of you you know new to this this stance then and basically what it comes down to is China's a big supporter of the NBA there's tons of fans there the NBA makes a lot of money because China supports their product um and and so to 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 uh, backlash China would mean uh, would have grave effects on the NBA and NBA players are making a lot of money right now I know professional athletes all across the world make a lot of money but but they're way ahead of the NFL if you are um, even you know a player who might be playing eight minutes of a 48 minute game it's very possible that you have you know an eight year 75 million dollar contract fully guaranteed you know, whereas you you might be the best running back of a generation, and run four years on a rookie contract and never get anything bigger because you tear your ACL and you're worthless to a team. So the the NBA players are they're well aware, I think, of where their bread is being buttered, and China is a huge part of it. Uh, but on this whole shoe issue, what I didn't realize is, you know, most most players have contracts with Nike, Adidas, uh, Reebok, etc. But there are uh, recently players that have big contracts with Anta. Um, some of them, Clay Thompson, his contract's worth $80 million with Anta, Dwayne Wade recently, and I'm just going to stop with those two because that's really all, all the farther you need to go because both, uh, well, Dwayne Wade for sure has spoke out numerous times on political issues here in the U.S., uh, and so I find it very frustrating that he would not, well, that he would speak out on political issues, again, in a country where rights and freedoms are, this is the standard in the United States. But in China, where his own company has doubled down on slave labor, uh, like intentionally, not even in an effort to hide anything. And he's, he hasn't made a statement or said, yeah, I'm not going to keep my contract with them. Um, that's very frustrating, I think, as a fan. Uh, and, and see, I, I think if I was in a position where, let's say, I, I was a pro athlete and I had a contract with Nike, you know, like, and Nike's doing something to produce their products and they're using um, cheap labor in Indonesia or somewhere else in Asia or whatever, um, I, I think it's it's reasonable to, to not call for Galen Rupp to boycott Nike or to, to decline his contract because you know, he can't control every aspect of that company. It might be the only company that's reached out to him for support. But when you're Dwayne Wade, you are huge. You're worth 
hundreds of millions of dollars, multiple NBA championships, massive. You could have a contract with anyone. You can pick and choose. You could say no to Anta and be just fine. So that's very disappointing. The reason I bring up Clay Thompson is Steve Kerr, the head coach of the Warriors, is always unafraid to speak his mind on political issues. It would be great for a journalism and a journalist in his press room to go, hey, Steve, I know you uh, have been very vocal about political issues. What are your thoughts on the situation going over in China where Uyghur Muslims are being forced to produce cotton and companies which sponsor your athletes um, are in favor and excited about it and have doubled down on it. Are you going to ask for Mr. Thompson and Mr. Wiseman, another player with Anta, um, to reconsider their contracts with those deals? What are your thoughts on that? You know, uh, no one will do that. But of course, you know, Steve Kerr, who has an answer for everything, he's very bold and brash in all of his uh, comments. And he has been since he was a guard for the University of Arizona. He's kind of very well known for his spicy comments and unafraid to speak his mind. But um, I think you'd have him pretty tongue tied if you asked him that question. All right. Up next is Hope a Skill. All right, folks, so uh, there it was. There's our commercial break. That's where we're at right now for sponsors. Um, just in case you were wondering, it's not it's not going well. Skiologian, cedarskier.com. We're averaging about 15 views a day, which is uh, not so great. We were, we were getting like 30s a while ago. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe the World Cup being done has just ruined us, Ralph. Yeah, I... I don't know. We're going to make a massive comeback this summer and uh, this fall when we start getting those t-shirts going, you know, for the cedarskier.com fall training camp. Oh, that's going to be epic. Send us your ideas for, wow, just burping on air. There we go. Okay. Well, we need to regroup here. If you've been listening this long, um, you are in for a real doozy here. This is the humdinger of all topics that crossed my desk last week and here it is the article in schools finding hope at a hopeless time research shows that hope is a measurable learnable skill and to feel hopeful students and teachers have to work at it this is from nora fleming march 26 2021 on edutopia oh man and where's the garage logic guys when you need it (laughs) okay well here you go now so um I'll kind of I'll kind of read through this article, sort of present to you what they see as being hope, and then I'm going to tell you what actual hope is, okay? And I'll probably mess up because I took notes on this article, but now you know, coming sitting down at the desk ten days later, it might be a little hard to find that train of thought, just as how I I thought originally. But anyway, here we go. In mid February, three snowstorms knocked out the electricity for thousands of residents in Boyd County, Kentucky. As they waited for up to two weeks for the lights to come on, many residents were left snowbound in their homes in freezing temperatures. Two people died from hypothermia before power was restored. The outages added insult to injury for a rural community struggling to keep students connected and engaged in remote learning for the past year, shared Christy Ford, a high school English teacher. With limited cell phone battery, Ford texted her students during the dark days to let them know she was thinking about them and asked them what they'd do first when the power came on. Quote, During the time virtual school was off the grid, I noticed that looking forward seemed to be the best use of my mental energy, said Ford, who now plans to create a new assignment. What's the first thing you'll do when things return to normal? Well, pandemic schooling has always been hard. 
It seemed to get harder as time has gone on, says Ford and other educators who are desperately looking for ways to help students stay motivated. Teachers have reported that students increasingly see school as irrelevant and feel a sense of hopelessness about the future. Even with vaccinations and school openings increasing, there are reported upticks in youth depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts. Many teachers, too, share a deepening sense of disillusionment after a year of significant upheaval and what is expected to be a challenging, slow transition back. That paragraph is loaded with a ton of things. <laughs> so first of all, sure, pandemic schooling has been hard. It has led to increase in youth depression, suicide attempts, teacher depression too. Um, kids aren't really liking it generally. Um, teachers are frustrated generally. That's, that is still painting that with a broad brush. Um, remote teaching has been unbelievably enjoyable for me, challenging, but I've loved it. Um, and actually in my remote classroom, I, I know that if there were perhaps, well, I'll say this, probably 10 of my students, if it was just a classroom of 10 and not, you know, between 24 and 28, which it has been, um, there's 10 of those, those guys and gals in there that, you know, if it was just like a homeschool group, we could go so deep and so far and learn so much because they just kind of have that personality where they're taking ownership of their school and the remote setting. Uh, would be great to like really accelerate their learning. They're very bright. Uh, they're very independent. And it's amazing how much more independent they have become because of remote learning. And the technological savvy of these students is phenomenal. I, I just had an assignment where students were uh, creating. Th- this is what I assigned to my fifth graders. We learned about the colonial regions, and I had them make a commercial advertising their colonial region in which they would highlight the geographic, political, economic, etc. characteristics of their region. And I, I put in links two options. They could make a flip grid. Do you know what that is? <laughs> a flip grid where, you know, recorded video segment basically. Or they could produce an animated cartoon commercial. I mean, when we're thinking of like fifth grade assignments that were even assigned four years ago, people weren't doing that. You know, but think about 30 years ago. You know, <laughs> a commercial was something only people at Walt Disney did. You know, and now I've got fifth graders who made between 45-second and two-minute commercials. They had their their voices in it. They, they designed their uh, two-dimensional <laughs> animated set with characters. They could put text up there, insert pictures, all that stuff. You know, just amazing. And the Flipgrids even, I had students create slideshows and record themselves where they were recording their screens and doing the commercial. It's phenomenal, right? So on the one hand, remote remote learning is actually, and I know I'm kind of off topic of our point of hope here, but it has actually, you know, just setting the stage, it's been amazing for some kids. It's been amazing for some teachers, but it certainly has um, led to an awareness of depression, down, uh, hopelessness, all of that. I will say though, <laughs> you know, this line that teachers have reported that students increasingly see school as irrelevant, feel a sense of hopelessness. Again, this isn't this isn't school's fault. Well, it's not It's not the domain of education's fault. Okay, the fact that students are seeing education as pointless is more on the student's perception of how the world works, right? The, the generation that we live in of kids looking at the world and going, all that exists is TikTok. All that exists is YouTube. All that exists is Roblox and um, Twitch and... 
And that's, you know, like there's there is no need to understand how to critically listen to an argument, how to put forth a thesis statement and support it with reasonable facts, how to think logically. That is kind of lost on kids completely. They don't see the direct need for it. And, and many kids are even losing that foundational kind of what maybe you and I had from our parents, like you need to get good grades so you can go to college so you can get a job. That linkage is is deteriorating at high speeds. Kids don't see that as like, you know, education is critical just to have like an okay life. There are some kids who see that. But again, that's that's kind of more on that perception. They're living – I don't think people realize this, by the way, that kids – and maybe this is connected to hope. They're sort of living in like this weird fake world out there. And, and let me make a point to illustrate this. I know I'm going off on all these tangents. Stay with me, okay? This is related, but this is it's related. It's kind of important. This is what I mean by living in an ulterior universe. Did you see the story about Anthony Edwards, the number one overall draft pick by the Minnesota Timberwolves, who is Rookie of the Year candidate, okay? He was asked if he knew who Al- if he had any opinions on who Alex Rod- on Alex Rodriguez. Alex Rodriguez is purchasing the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, Alex Rodriguez, of course, <laughs> if you know anything about pop culture and you've been connected as an athlete, he is the superstar shortstop for the Mariners, Texas Rangers, and New York Yankees. He played in the major leagues for 20 years from 1996 to 2016. Um, he hit 696 home runs. He's a World Series champion, three-time MVP, maybe more. Okay, he's, he has numerous Major League Baseball records. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer other than the fact that he admitted to taking steroids at some point in his career. So A-Rod, he also dated J-Lo recently. I think they maybe broke up. But so the reason he, the, the reason I say that, he, you know, he was on like the New Year's, New Year's Eve show, him and J-Lo. And he's he's very well known in pop culture. And, and if you're if you're an athlete or you like sports, you wouldn't you'd be like not knowing who Babe Ruth was if you lived in the 1940s, okay? So um, you know who A-Rod is if you're, if you're a kid. And so he's buying the Timberwolves, and this reporter asks uh, Edwards, what are your thoughts on A-Rod? And he says, point blank, I don't know who that is. And there's all these takes, people going, does he get a pass for that? Oh, he's so young, he's only 20, right? And A-Rod, blah, blah, blah. Here's the, here's the fact, A-Rod stopped playing in 2016 okay Edwards was 15 years old all right I don't care if he doesn't know if he doesn't care about baseball you know who Alex Rodriguez is just by virtue of being a sports junkie okay any any kid would know who the major players are in the four major sports Uh, I I don't follow a lick of soccer and I could tell you just because I'm a sports fan like yep I've heard of Lionel Messi okay I've even heard of Ronaldo Ronaldinho uh we could I I've I know who Freddie Adu is I in my day I knew who Landon Donovan was I hate soccer and I don't follow it at all and I could name to you at least those four or five big players A-Rod's that big when it comes to baseball so it's kind of inexcusable. And so people are kind of, I love the one take guy, common man. He says, you know, this is great. Yeah, Edwards doesn't need to know who A-Rod is. You know, it's kind of awesome. Sorry, A-Rod, you're not worshipped and on a pedestal like you want to be too bad. And Edwards doesn't like baseball, he doesn't care. Uh, that's fair. That's a good take. But here's the problem. The real reason Edwards doesn't know who A-Rod is is because um, unlike 
in our generation, just 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when we were 10 years old, and, and I didn't have cable TV, okay? I didn't. But our media and the culture was still coming through public television, NBC, ABC. It was on cable television, newspapers. It was in outlets that were kind of accessible and real to all people. And I'm telling you, Edwards lives his life through social media and through video games and through YouTube. So if you named off four or five of the, the cream of the crop TikTok stars, I couldn't for the life of me, differentiate them in a two-person lineup uh, with the TikTok star and Muhammad Ali. I wouldn't be able to identify them, you know. And Edwards might know ten of them. So th- this just shows you it's not it's not because he, oh he doesn't like baseball. It's because he's living in a world where where like the only thing that's reality to him in, in a or the only thing that's you know kind of he's absorbed by is these um, social media. Um, and video games and sort of the connection of the two, the the interplay of the two in Twitch and YouTube and those things. So that that's that's part of the problem here. It connects back to our hope issue because just the undergirding foundation of students not caring about things that are important for reality because they're so absorbed in things that are kind of fake and that throws them off of the the general source of hope i think for the last 75 years in our country has been um rooted in a borrowed christianity plate what i mean by that is the real only source of hope has to do with um, eternal values that we find only in the Bible consistently um, played out in our world. But you can borrow from that and think about wanting to have a good life and wanting to be nice to your neighbor and be a good upright person and pushing forward just because it's the right thing to do and and caring about school because it's going to lead to you getting a good job. I think I think in the last, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, people kind of just had these values um, that were rooted in Christian presuppositions, but they denied that religion. You know, they don't, they're not going to accept the, the necessary, um, epicenter of it in faith, but they still can, they still hold those same values just for their own autonomous reasons, I guess we'll say. And so that's why they didn't have those issues. Well, our, our kids now are like, they're so far off. They're not even really engaged in what's going on. I think that's part of the problem at least. But anyway, I I digress severely and people are probably like, yeah, can we get back to this article here? So anyway, so what, back to it. So what can educators do to instill hope in students, especially when many feel hopeless themselves? According, and this is where it starts to get nuts. Where's the garage logic sounders? According to many research studies, people who are hopeful, Ajay, okay, hold on. This is the problem of having the home studio, right? Uh, here we are, shovel, shovel like public radio. Yeah, we do have a radio dog with us. So, uh, where was I? Uh, according to many research studies, people who are hopeful aren't simply optimists or Pollyannas. Pollyannas? Can someone do a Google search on that? It's capitalized. All right, hold on. I got. I got to do that. Okay, we're gonna. <laughs> Pollyannas meaning. An excessively cheerful, cheerful or optimistic person, and according to, well, there's a book, Pollyanna, a novel from 1913 written by Eleanor Porter, considered a classic of children's literature. 
Is that what it's from? Where did the term Pollyanna come from? Looks like it is from that novel. Okay, well, that's weird. Let's make sure we use that. So uh, people who are hopeful aren't simply optimists or Pollyannas, but are able to Pollyannas. Oh, I get it. Like Pollyanna. Honey, let's name our child Pollyanna. But are able to think proactively about the future and plan ahead to get there. Research research shows that hope is a learnable, measurable skill and one that has a sizable impact on students' success and persistence in school. All of those are linked. So we got three separate studies there. Um, hope is a learnable, measurable skill, one that has a sizable impact on students' success and persistence in school. Crazy. Children who are hopeful are also found to have higher self-esteem and social skills, are more likely to set and achieve goals, and can more easily bounce back from adversity. People always think of hope as squishy, but it's not, said Crystal Bryce, the Associate Director of Research at the Center for the Advanced Study and Practice of Hope at Arizona State University. In case you you thought you heard that wrong, yes, there is a study practice, uh, a center for advanced study and practice of hope at ASU. Hope is cognition and a leading motivation that pushes people to act towards their goals. It's a skill we have to work on and one that we can grow. All right, so stopping you right there, hope is a cognition? Hmm, is it? A cognition is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought experience and the senses. I understand, I think, what, and, and I haven't looked enough at these studies, but I really think that they're, like many, like many things, in a sense they're true and in a sense they are wrong. In a sense, in a sense this is true, in a sense this is false. Um, because at its foundation, hope is not a skill um, that can be measured. Even on the biblical side, uh, well, okay, hold on. Let me let me let me present this. Hope, hope. Uh, your your ability to be more hopeful can improve. Okay, so if you want to call that a skill, perhaps. But the but hope itself isn't a skill. And and that and so if if I'm if I'm a Christian and I think okay, my hope is ultimately rooted in the sovereign God of the universe, his sovereign decrees and the fact that he loves me. And those two things, I'll explain how they form the basis of our hope, but essentially God decrees all things and he works all things out for my good. Okay, those two truths from the Bible, from Romans 8, 28, um, kind of form the foundation for hope because now I can look at everything and go, yep, there was a purpose between behind that. There was a purpose for that. There was a purpose for that. There's a purpo- purpose for everything because the sovereign God of the universe is in control of all things and he says he works all things according to his purpose and accordance with his will to bring him glory and to bring you pleasure, you being me, his followers. So if, I, if I'm resting on that, that's, that's what hope is. It lies there. But there can be a Christian who does not express and demonstrate very high levels of hope because they, they don't meditate on that truth enough to make it real. So in the sense that I'm you know kind of mocking this article, there is a sense of truth for even the Christian who believes what I just said because 
they, through wor- through worship and time with God and, and really thinking about these truths and praying about them and reading more scripture and really just kind of like bathing yourself in the truth from the Bible, essentially, you're going to be more hopeful because those truths are more alive to you. And so I think in that sense, you can improve your hope, but that still doesn't make it like a skill, right? That actually, in reality, is a supernatural transformation of your heart. That's really what's happening. I mean, sorry, like even on a secular viewpoint, what's really going on here to make you more hopeful is that your heart is changing. And and so these these people who are trying to identify like, well, look, we're actually seeing like neurological changes behind someone who's more hopeful or someone who increases in hope. We see their brain interact in different ways. Fine. That doesn't deny what I just said about the Bible. It's totally, totally possible that God decreeing the means for how hope is expressed in the body has a, um, of an, uh, an observable thing, right? God through the Holy Spirit could make you more aware of his promises, which makes you more hopeful. And what is going on in your body that is making you feel differently is perhaps some sort of uh, a different wavelength that happens in your brain or whatnot. And now your hormones are acting differently. I think I think that could be actually legitimately connected in some way. Um, but to just go, oh, look, we found these wavelength changes. We found that part. Um, and so hope must be a skill. And so now we need to figure out how to make that happen more. And the, so the problem is, right, there's there's looking at the what happens when people are more hopeful and then they're, they're, they're misidentifying the sources of that hope. And you're going to see that because later in this article, they're going to talk about here is how we increase hope. Okay, and and when I read this article the first time, what I what I caught them basically saying is the way that you get people to be more hopeful is to well do several things, and you're going to notice that a lot of them are replacing biblical um, commands as well. Okay, like looking at the future, getting things off of your chest, all that stuff. So let's keep going, and I'll point that out. All right, here's the first one. According to researchers and psychologists like Bryce, small shifts in curriculum, assignments, and tasks can actually have an effect on how students see themselves in their world. So there's the first thing. You change the curriculum. You change some assignments. You change change some of those, those tasks. And now students view the world differently, and it allows them to be more optimistic. By making some adjustments and bringing new activities, teachers can mitigate some of the hopelessness students feel and, in turn, make themselves feel more hopeful too. And I will say, too, as you change these things, um, that sure, let's, let's say you, let's say you have a positive effect. People seem more hopeful. You feel more hopeful. Has that actually increased hope? If, if true hope has to be grounded in an objective truth? No, it hasn't. That that's also the problem here too. You can do all the little tricks of the trade that you want, and you can increase all your little wavelengths in the brain, and hormones now have been elevated to make you feel more optimistic, and you can call that hope, and you can say we've increased hope. The fact of the matter is um, when the moon turns to blood and um, people start dying and people are being murdered and killed senselessly because of your worldview, it's senseless, um, then, then what? Where's your hope now? Are you going to assign a different worksheet for math and and be able to um, overcome the lack of a foundation for your hope? Of course not. So that's also a problem here. Don't sweep it under the rug, second part of the article. To feel more hopeful, address the elephant in the room. 
That's actually a good statement. They should address the elephant in the room. Where's God? That's the elephant. Mm. You know, when I'm teaching and I'm sipping coffee, I'm always having my students do something. So I just realized in radio that doesn't really work. I was going to say, keep reading and I'll catch up. Both children and adults should acknowledge and address the tumult. Did I say that right? Hopefully. They've experienced this past year, says David Schoenfeld, a pediatrician and director of the National Center for a School Crisis and Bereavement at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, which works with schools after crises like school shootings. Not long after 9-11, Schoenfeld said, one of his daughters came home from school frustrated. They haven't talked at all about what happened on 9-11, Schoenfeld recalled her saying. Right now, we're learning about the War of 1812. Can you think of any way school could be less relevant to my life right now? While learning about the War of 1812 is important, neglecting to discuss current realities can make students feel that school is out of touch and push them to disengage, says Schoenfeld. <clears throat> That's not to say educators should turn every class into a counseling session, but they should try to carve out time for students to share how they feel. Be careful not to minimize their feelings by making them, quote, feel guilty for being upset about something that pales in comparison to someone else's tragedy, he cautioned. <clears throat> okay, this is in light of the whole empathy-sympathy debate that's been going and raging on in theological circles. This is this is kind of a crazy um, section. So, first of all, one first point, kids today don't even know what 9-11 is. Keep that in your back pocket. They don't. In fact, I asked high schoolers in 2016, so they would have been three or four years old when this happened. They didn't even know about 9-11, a lot of them. So just keep that in mind, okay? Uh, we probably should talk about 9-11 now because kids don't know about it. But the whole idea of let's just take any event, okay, there's crazies that's going on, the insurrection at the White House. Well, uh, I don't really want to touch that topic, so um, let's just talk about verbs and verb tenses. I get how that is avoiding an issue, but feel me out here. If you're a teacher, let's just take, let's take me, right? I love thinking deeply about things. Um, and I would love to address current events with my students in a way that's actually helpful for them. And I know that I hold, I hold truths that I could give to them that would help them navigate these things in their lives. Namely, I could give them secure, true hope in the word the God of the universe that that knows and loves them and and has purpose for all things that he's decreeing um, and and desires a relationship with them, I could give them the answer to their problems, um, but I can't because it's a public school. How would uh, how on earth? Why would I want to go? Why would I want to say, all right, let's talk about these current events? But I'm not I'm not actually going to help my students here. That, that's the reality. Obviously, most teachers don't see it the way I do. They, don't, they would disagree with me. They would say, you know, that, that you're wrong. Your, your faith is just your own opinion. So that's just another subjective thing. And so, no, like we can be helpful for students. Let's, let's bring the current events in. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it and have a little counseling session. But the problem is, is that's, that's not how it works. But, but what I'm saying is, is okay, for, so for a teacher like me who feels like I've got the tools to help them, but I'm being limited in how I can provide it to them, um, it is difficult to talk about current event problems in a meaningful way. However, I'll, I'll take from this article and I'll go, okay, maybe it is meaningful for students to just express how they feel. You know, let's let, it, let's let them get these things off their chest. You know, and um, what I would and let them share how they're thinking about these things. And, and I love this last line. Be careful not to minimize their feelings by making them feel guilty for being upset about something that pales in comparison to someone else's tragedy. 
you know, like if you have a student who has lost, lost a loved one, a family member maybe, and that's a deep, serious grievance. And then you've got another person who, you know, their 16-year-old pet passed away after a long, good life. Those aren't equal, but, you know, we don't want to minimize that. I find that ironic because I feel like the general culture is to not, it is to do the exact opposite. It's to rank things. You know, this person was oppressed. Uh, This category, this group was oppressed far greater than you can ever imagine, right? If you're if, if you're me, right? If you're a white 30-year-old middle-class male, you know nothing of oppressions. And don't even start to try to 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 come to complain about your plight, right? Because you know nothing about it. I think there's like a little bit of that in our culture. So I find it ironic that they say, "No, go ahead. Share and and don't diminish." But but you know, we're talking about different classes here. This is in in school, right? You've got kids who maybe are oblivious to that. But again, if you're going to call for us to consider the current events, the relevancy of our current culture, then I think you should. So what is it? Are you going to call for them to consider it or not, and and share about it or not, and be fair or not? Uh, anyway, I think the bottom line. Well, let's keep going this and finish this group, and then I'll I'll say how I think this is related to the biblical version of hope. So next, it says. Instead, coach students to focus on one or two things that are troubling them, a roadblock, for example, and address those specifically, said Phyllis Fagel, a school counselor in Washington, D.C. Fagel's go-to is a is using a worry monster, a stuffed monster with a zippered mouth pouch <laughs> for younger students, or a worry box for older students, where students can write down a worry and set it aside. She also recommends creating anonymous Google Docs so that students can freely vent frustrations and brainstorming coping strategies to help. uh, Kids can't solve problems if they feel stuck and overwhelmed, said Figuel. A small setback can leave a kid feeling hopeless, but it often doesn't take much to pull them back from the brink. And then there's a nice picture here. It says, teachers can have students make time capsules or write letters to their future selves to frame the pandemic as a moment in time. Okay, that's unrelated. I think that's kind of a sweet idea, and it shouldn't have anything to do with hope because that's just sweet. Yeah, write letters to yourself. Make make a, a time capsule. Hmm. Here's what I have a problem with, okay? Did you catch this? You have a worry monster or a worry box. You write down your worries and you set them aside. What does that sound a lot like we as Christians do all the time? We Is this a replacement for God who, who calls us to cast all of our cares upon him? Is this a replacement, right? The worry monster Go ahead and talk to your worry monster. Tell him all your problems and get them off your chest. He'll deal with them, right? Now, I think it's it can be valuable to journal journal um, your thoughts, your feelings, your fears. That is true. But I think ultimately, even as you're journaling, you're realizing that like you want someone to be listening to those um, those things that you're putting out there. And the most valuable journaling is people who are journaling kind of almost as a prayer journal, right? They're, they're just simply writing down their prayers. In, in a sense, I admire Christians who do that because, you know, then they, they can have that record of, of what, they've, what they've prayed for over their life. But, but essentially, the whole point is, is in the secular world, you cast your cares upon a worry monster. And in the real world, we have the sovereign God of the universe who is waiting to um, hear your cries for help. <laughs> I don't know about you, but 
the worry monster sounds like a better option. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, this just that that's the first one that I, I caught my attention as interesting. In all these stories where we have an issue like hope that really is so biblical in nature and in when we replace in our worldview, when we've when we've eliminated the epicenter of the worldview, which is God, but we want to keep everything else, we have to be kind of crazy to make have it all make sense. <clears throat> Keeping going here, making history. Teachers might also consider helping students frame current experiences as a moment in time and one that will pass eventually. Bring in examples of other past global crises or pan- epidemics, says Michelle Borba, a former teacher and nationally recognized educational psychologist who is the author of Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. Love to read that book. As a supplement, students can create time capsules or write letters to their future selves about their experiences, what progress is made, and what they see ahead. Again, in a biblical worldview, doing that makes a lot of sense because you um, have a worldview which says um, the sovereign God of the universe is decreeing things for a purpose, and you are an ant crawling across a large Monet picture and just simply can't see everything and make sense of those events in light of his sovereign decree and sovereign purpose. But that's okay. You can still comment on what were you thinking at this time. Make a time capsule. Write your thoughts down, and and someday we'll get to heaven, and God will be able to explain to us the exact purposes of everything. But our job isn't to try and dwell on that. It's more to trust in him, um, worship him, and obey him amidst all the calamities, and to understand and trust in in his power and in his purpose, in his purposes for our lives, no matter what is going on. You know, maybe you win the Birky, maybe you name your child Birky, and maybe your child named Birky uh, dies in a tragic uh, car accident or is run over at a stop sign walking to school. Those things all have purpose, and, and in our Christian worldview, we can think about those things. A pandemic might last for two years. It might last for 20. It might cause economic disaster. Your your business might get shut down. You can think about those things as having a purpose if you have a Christian worldview. And I just have to challenge this section where it says, you know, making history frame current experiences in a moment of time. On what basis do you even call this a moment of time? This is all just, these are all just random occurrences in a secular worldview. If, if we came about by randomness and, and our whole world is based off of disorder, then these current experiences are just equally as random as the ones that happened 20 years ago and the ones that happened 2,000 years ago and, heaven forbid, 2 billion years ago, right? It's just, it's just molecular reactions happening. It's just one brain fizz doing this to another brain fizz, um, bags of mostly water, talking and interacting with other bags and mostly water with ideas that are simply random chemical reactions. None of this has any purpose or makes sense. So why write down um, thoughts? What purpose does that even serve to put down your random chemical fizz thoughts in a bottle and bury them? <laughs> I don't know. And who's to say that this pandemic will pass eventually? You know, and, and that could probably go for either Christian worldview or secular worldview, but certainly what guarantee do you have that, that this will pass and that things will get better again? Says who? Who, who says that, that things are going to improve? Uh, I don't know. Like, uh, you know, if you, if you go back to the past and look at, well, things have kind of always, we've had ups and downs in, in world history. Things have been really bad and gotten a lot better. So I guess I'm just assuming that the future is going to look a lot like the past. Well, on what basis can you even determine that? You know, and that's, um, 
that's a, a actually you know a logical fallacy to point to the past and go you know in the past the future always looked like the past but who's to say that in the future the past will always look like the past if our world is simply random random uh interactions chemical fizzes going back and forth so yes in the and this is another the second point that sort of is a biblical replacement right is in our worldview events in time truly have purpose and it is it's cool to think about them in light of the larger greater purpose in god's plan um and this is an attempt in a secular worldview to go Look at this is just a moment in time and you're going to remember it and and it does have a a a purpose and and so think and dwell on it as just sort of a moment in time in the larger grand scheme of things. Well, in this world there is no larger grand scheme. So ta- thinking about a moment in time is completely pointless to someone who really wants to think critically. Okay, another sip of coffee and then we'll keep going. A mindset shift. When students have the right frame of reference, educators can prime their brains to be more hopeful, according to research. I love it. It's like, even that one sentence makes it seem like our students are like little vehicles and we have to put in the right like combination of gas and supplements into them and then they they are educators. We can prime their brains to be more hopeful. According to research, thanks for the link. Oh dear. C.R. Rick, apparently has a Nick, Rick Snyder, a well-known researcher of hope, found that students who scored higher on measures of hope had more agency to develop goals and set pathways to accomplish them, including finding alternative strategies if they had setbacks along the way. Ask the right question. Again, the, I think this is a misdefinition of hope. I don't, I don't know if I really stated this clearly enough, but like when we're talking about researchers who research hope, they're not actually researching hope as it should be properly defined. Like What they are researching is a person's um, in like the way they've embodied hope, the way they the extent they live out their hope, that's really what it is, and that's a difference. The extent to which you live out your hope, I could have an incredible hope that's rooted in the tooth fairy, um, a, 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 and a hope that says the tooth fairy is going to come one day and give me one million dollars and make everything all better, and I could have that hope, and I could actually live that out to a certain extent. Maybe it's a great extent, and it allows me to be very optimistic about all things going on in my life. Okay, and that that would be a legitimate expression of hope. The problem is, is it's the actual hope is completely, as we would know, right? It's it's founded in nothing. So it's very weak, even though your expression is very strong. Like if I was able to navigate challenges in my life because of my deep hope in the tooth fairy, so my wife dies and I'm still, ah, that's okay. I got that tooth fairy hope. It's 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 keeping me going. You know, I lose my job. I've got that tooth fairy hope. I'm going to keep going. The hope in the tooth fairy, they'll provide for me, right? The actual hope is nothing. The expression of hope is very high. So I might score extremely high in the measures of hope exam, but I would have no actual hope. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. So we continue. Ask the right questions. A good starting place for teachers is regularly integrating specific questions question prompts into classroom activities that many already conduct, like morning meetings or entry or exit tickets. I love exit tickets, said Denise Larson, a research professor and the director of Hope Studies Central Research Center at the University of Alberta. My goodness, how many hope studies do we need? How many places do we need that are centers for research on hope? What What is God thinking up there as he looks down? Hmm. Larson. A former teacher who has studied hope for the last two decades. 
recommends having students answer the prompt, today I hope, as a verbal or written response daily, if possible. Students can also journal about things they are hopeful and thankful for, or complete a broader exercise in which they reflect on their past successes or times they overcame obstacles. There's a good, secular, autonomous, human-centered way of of uh, fueling your source of hope, right? Think about the things that you've done under your own strength and power to overcome the trials of this life. Where have you been successful? Find your hope there, right? Don't find your hope in a source that is truly all-powerful and by which the universe is held together. Don't do that, okay? Reflect on your own past successes. Good idea. Select Set goals with accountability. These prompts can develop into more comprehensive activities where students and teachers work together to tie a student's hopes to specific goals. So now we've even kind of like hijacked the term hope into uh, a totally different thing, right? Now hope has become like, I hope to win a gold medal, right? It, and that, that's what they're going to get into. Not, not like, I hope in the Lord. T- two completely different things, right? I hope in the tooth fairy. I hope in the Lord. I find my source of hope in his sovereignty and in his promises. No, now we're just going like, I hope it's sunny today. I hope it doesn't rain today. I'm like, what on earth? This is just the other definition of hope. I can't believe they didn't realize this. To make the goals manageable, teachers should help students prioritize and break them into smaller targeted goals or stepping stones, along with a plan B if things don't work out, said Bryce. Most important, the goals should be personalized to the child, not someone else's goals for them. Of course, of course. Autonomous, human-centered. High school English teacher Allison Berryhill recently conducted a Dream It, Do It activity in her class, for example. Students first watched Tim Urban's TED Talk, Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator, and discussed how one might not achieve goals if they lack structure. Then, each student brainstormed 12 hopes for their future and selected one to focus on. Using a backward planning process, students developed plans to reach their goals, including conducting research and setting deadlines, and presenting, presented them to the classmates for accountability. While hopes and goals are closely related, a framing of hope sets a different tone, and one that may help students, especially those who are discouraged, to think futuristically. There is a simple but powerful shift in the language when we move from goals to hope, she said. It's possible to fail at a goal, but you can't fail at hope. Start with hope first. Uh, I, I think that sentence is is strange. I'm not even sure really what it means. Um, so I, uh, if you're hoping for something, you can't fail at hope, but you can fail at a goal. Like I have a goal of running a sub four minute mile. I can obviously fail at that, but if I hope I can run a sub four minute mile, I can't fail. I'm not really sure that distinction. I want to pause right here because I think you know for some listeners they might be thinking they might be thinking that I'm mocking this idea of thinking forward, brainstorming, setting goals, having a plan, and even mocking the idea that if you do that, it actually leads to optimism. That's not true. I I do the same thing in my own classroom. And in fact, because I work in a secular setting, I know this is my only chance to, to reach out to my students and hope that they find the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's promises. Okay, so I know that I have to go in the back door. I can't start with the foundational reason why setting goals is meaningful. I have to teach them how to set goals, teach them, like this article is saying, to think forwardly and to think with a purpose and to care about what they're doing. I have to just hope that they buy into that and then go, huh, I wonder why it's actually important to set goals and to live my life with a purpose. I have to hope that they they actually think that out. That is my only hope. 
So in the Christian worldview, with my own kids, I can teach them how to set goals and I can teach them how to strive for true success, which is giving 100% effort to be the best they can be. And I can teach them that that striving is going to be powered by their sense of purpose. So if you have a great firm purpose in life, you will strive harder for success than someone who doesn't. I can teach my kids that. And then I can even, and I can teach my kids in, in a class that, a secular class from that too. But the thing I can't teach them is the source of that purpose. I can't tell them that the ultimate purpose in life that you've been given is a truly miraculously beautiful eternal purpose given to you by the sovereign God of the universe. He has declared that your highest purpose is to glorify him and that there's no other purpose that will bring you greater joy and fulfillment. It's it's not a it's not like a slave statement to say the greatest purpose is to is to worship me. That's like the most heavenly joy. You you can't and he's created the world that way. There's no possible um, more meaningful purpose than giving worship and and um, giving worship and glory to the only thing that actually is worthy of worship and glory. If there were other things worthy of worship and glory, then I could even try and debate. Well, well that is kind of you know egocentric of God to demand worship, but it, it that doesn't it doesn't work that way. So He's created your purpose is to give Him glory, and that has a dual uh, effect of bringing you the the utmost pleasure too. And so in my philosophy, you've got strive for true success rooted in a purpose. Purpose is rooted in a truth, a truth claim. But in here, so what I'm trying to say is, is yes, we should be teaching people how to set goals. We should be th- teaching them how to look forward in the process. And I absolutely 100% believe that the research that's saying that helps people be optimistic, I totally think it's true. <clears throat> but But the missing component is that it still lacks a foundation. So ultimately it could be shattered. It could absolutely be shattered. And that's why I think you see people in the world who oftentimes go through parts of their life where they're extremely motivated and have goals and they 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 fly high going through those goals and, and accomplishing things. But but because they lacked any true purpose, like they, they knew that they were living to glorify uh, the God of the universe, they were living for something with eternal value once it was kind of done and once they got bored of it and once they realized, oh, this is kind of pointless, they just kind of move on to the next thing or give up altogether. Their life takes a different turn. Um, so this is, this is a, you know, as I'm mocking this, the reason I'm mocking it is because they're saying all these good things but lacking uh, lacking the, the foundation to justify any of them. So I hope you're seeing that as I read this. Opportunities for impact. Next section. It can be a challenge, however, to think optimistically about the future amid so much instability and uncertainty, said Schoenfeld and other experts. In a classroom, teachers can help combat the feelings of powerlessness by giving students opportunities where they regain a sense of control. This, in turn, makes them feel more hopeful. According to a 2010 research study of adolescents age 14 to 18, these can be small things like the ability to choose activities to complete, an opportunity to share passions and interests, or having a second chance to improve. Give them control. They need to regain a sense of control. Are you seeing what biblical truth this is replacing? You're putting the autonomous man at the center of control, a false sense of control. They don't have control. We don't have control over things, okay? Um, 
the sovereign God of the universe has control over everything. It's by the power of his word that all things are being held together. So uh, yeah, sure. Regaining a sense of control, of course, that's going to give you this false sense of autonomy and optimism, but it's it's exactly that. It's not truly... Uh, something you can hang your hat on. And and anyone who's lived on this earth for more than five seconds has come to grips with the fact that they are but man. And what I mean by that is, think to, the, think to a moment in life, maybe it hasn't happened to you, but I know I can think of a moment where you were really shaken up and you really realized your creatureliness in the sense that you're like, whoa, I kind of thought... I was sort of in control of some things here, and I sort of was organized and planned things out, and and all that. And I'm I really have nothing I'm I'm in control of. If God wanted to, He could pull a job on me and like rip every rug out from under me, you know, where I'm literally on the side of the road, uh, naked, and um, you know, flies are picking at my skin, like Nebuchadnezzar, same thing, right? It's very it's very incredible how deceiving our lives can make us feel like, um, and this is Christians too, who who maybe verbally recognize God's in control of everything, but then deep down they're like, you know, I've planned out my retirement. <laughs> That's on me. I planned out my retirement, and I've got a nice house, and I'm figuring that stuff out. You know, but yeah, God's in control of everything. You know, or I'm driving down the road. It's all me here. I'm I'm in control of of me getting from point A to point B safely. You know, but God's in control of everything. But then you hit a, a patch of black ice that you couldn't see, right? Or a deer runs across the road, and this or that, and you're like, oh, I guess I had no control over that, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> and and it's experiences like that that awaken us to the fact that not only do we have limited control over certain things in ultimate. The ultimacy, the ultimate reality is because God is is not a single atom is is running astray out of his sight, there really is nothing that we have a truly autonomous control over, you know, and especially in terms of, and I'm not even getting into like the nature of our will. I think that that's, that's a little more complex. What I'm talking more about is just like, you know, the status quo of our lives. You know, the difference between you and me living in a nice house here in, in America versus being Job and having every family member dead, losing your job, having awful health. Like we realize pretty quickly how little we have control when you suffer uh, in your own health. Okay, that's one area. But but there's so much more that we take for granted that we think we have some sort of control over that we don't really. So I think I think I find it interesting that, you know, again, a part a part of this is recognize your autonomous control in the secular worldview. You know, well, that's that's a good key to give you more hope. How about connecting students to students? Oh, good. Next one. Educators should also consider larger impacts that students can have right now, says Borba and others. She recommends helping children see themselves as change makers by sharing stories of children who have made a difference. Even if the impact was small, consider pairing older students and younger students together or buddies within a class, Barba said, so that students can quickly see results from the small things they do that affect others. Again, I want to challenge this. Why, on what basis do you say children who have made a difference or children who have done something positive on what basis are you even saying that in the secular worldview what's a positive thing just think about that really deeply for a second right positive thing helping others why 
Says who? Why is helping other people even a positive moral thing to do? You know, this this cuts to the epistemological and ethical foundation of this worldview, the lack of it. That's one thing. Um, <clears throat> but also... And, and I, well, actually, I think that that's really the whole point right there. And, and people who read through this don't really think about it like that um, because, yes, connection with others is important. And connection in the body of believers is is true importance because you're actually fighting for something, doing work um, that you can justify and account for in your worldview. God has... God has set the ethical standards for the world that we live in. He's determined good and bad, what's right and what's wrong. And he's commanded us to go and help the poor and help the widows and and to do so as a body of believers. So it makes sense for us to get together and do that. But in this worldview, I, I really, um, I'm confused. I thought we were in an evolutionary worldview where we're like fighting for existence and it <clears throat> doesn't really make sense for me to necessarily desire to connect with others to, quote, help others. Really, I know this is this is very stark and, and people won't want to hear it, but if you have a secular worldview void of God, ethics becomes completely subjective, ultimately. You can't avoid um, arbitrariness in your morality without a objective moral standard. So this, this, this paragraph, even though to us, obviously, because we're made in the image of God, we read this and we know what it means. But if we have a worldview that does not have the God of the Bible in it, we actually can't account for it. So I'm not saying it doesn't make sense to someone. If you if you are an unbeliever and you're listening to the show, I'm not saying that you don't even get this paragraph. I get it. You're reading the same paragraph the same way I am. And because you're made in the image of God, this appeals to you as going, what do you, yeah, of course, we should help each other. That's important. That's good. Of course you of course you believe that. I'm not denying that you don't believe it. What I'm saying is you can't really account for that belief. So there is a difference. You believe that, you recognize it, you feel that that's morally the right thing to do, but there's there's actually not a justification given your worldview that would account for that. So that's the that's the thing that's again ironic. Create community projects. Because hope is driven by the individual, children should be given a chance to brainstorm their own ideas for making an impact too. According to research, having hope for others can have a significant effect on how much hope people feel themselves, especially for children. This is like a whole nother level, right? Don't just even have hope for others. Don't just help others. I'm sorry. Don't just have a hope for yourself. Don't just help others. Consider the hope that other people have for themselves. Wow. What what unselfish, amazing um, you know, heartfelt, what a heartfelt statement that is. But on what basis in the secular worldview would you do that? Why, why would you ask someone to do that? If, if someone says, why should I care how other people think about themselves? Like, what are you going to say as a teacher to that question? <laughs> why is it good to help others? We could maybe as teachers in a secular worldview come around to like a question, uh, the answer to that, that even though it's not going to really sufficiently answer the question, you could say it. But why should I care how other people are feeling hope? Wow. In Amy Badger's middle school class, students present ideas for how to bring hope to their community. The class then votes on the proposals and picks one to take on, including developing an action plan together for achieving it. It's normal for a person, person's hope to ebb and flow, though, especially in tough times. Well, actually, your hope will not ebb and flow if it's, an ob- if, it's, if it's founded in an objective truth. Your hope will not ebb and flow. Your, um, 
your uh, your expression of hope, your the way you live out your hope could possibly ebb and flow. Christians have been challenged by tough times. Ultimately, um, getting to well, hold on. Okay, let me finish this before I get there. Larson suggests that as teachers, this is the last paragraph, as teachers try to stay steadfast at the helm, they find tiny sparks or hits of hope, like reminding themselves of all the times they impacted kids and didn't realize it until later. One of the biggest ways to bring hope to children is through their relationships with supportive adults, she and others emphasize. My takeaway during dark times is I need to model strong and consistent behaviors for my students, even if I'm struggling with the same frustrations and sense of hopelessness myself, Christy Ford says. Ultimately, this article is going to argue that hope needs to be found in you. You need to create your own hope, right? Through all of the tactics that were discussed in this chapter. Change assignments, give yourself some autonomy over your work, set goals, help others. All these things are things that you can do to improve your hope. And and this is why the the misunderstanding of the clear definition of what hope is versus optimism, which I think really what this article is talking about is, is truly an optimistic outlook. <clears throat> How optimistic are you, right? And and I think there are definitely like band-aid strategies that we see here that absolutely work. You know, they and and actually they're the same strategies that Christians use. They are. We all do many of these th- same things. The difference is is this isn't where we find our source of hope right? This is, this is how we go about living in the world, finding di- different ways to elevate our optimism and to realize the source of our hope. That's really actually the difference. When we go out in the community and we connect with others, we help others, it makes us feel better and we're more optimistic and, and bright. But the reason is, is because what's actually happened is we've been, in, uh, we've been reinvigorated in the fire in our heart of the realization of what the foundation of our hope is, has come alive again. We're out there helping others and we we remember Romans 8.28, and we remember that the source of our hope lies in the sovereign God of the universe, decreeing all things for our good and for his glory. Okay? Like, that. so all these things that are mentioned, it's it's kind of ironic because they're all things that I would recommend doing. But the, the, the reason I bring this article about is they aren't the source, and this article is trying to kind of suggest that they are, or or it's at least not recognizing where the source of hope is. Sure, these things increase your optimism, and they're basically hijacking hope and, and inserting uh, that word for it. Because really, hope, again, I could hope in the tooth fairy, but then do all of these strategies and feel more optimistic um, but but my actual hope is founded in the tooth fairy. That's not going to get me far when life is bad enough. Okay. Th- the reality is, is this article is asking you to do things to improve your hope. It's placing the burden of holding up hope on you. You have to... Um, you have to be the source of hope. That's impossible. A human is not capable of being the source of hope, ultimately. You can be the source of great optimism, and you can walk through this world and force yourself to be optimistic, and you can do all these strategies, and maybe it will improve your optimism, but you can't actually be the ultimate source of hope, and you know that deep down, too. Everyone knows that. We all know that we can't have hope because True hope has to have some sort of eternal value. 
that that really is what it boils down to. If you like keep asking yourself like why you couldn't do that, ultimately it's because if there is no eternal value, then everything ultimately just becomes kind of like dust. It's it's going to be gone anyway, so it's meaningless. It's going to be gone anyway, so it's meaningless. So that that's that's why you can't you can't be the epicenter of your hope. But again, all these strategies can be used. So what what is the I, I was going to say? It's normal for a person's hope to ebb and flow, especially in tough times. So going back to that statement, the Christian's hope. I asked my students, by the way, for a journal question of the day, and I said, "Let me see if I can just. I don't. I want to read off exactly the words that I said for for hope." So I posed this question. I said, what allows you to have hope when life throws you curveballs? We all go through ups and downs. What is it that is an anchor for your soul to keep you optimistic? Yes, I have fifth graders that can handle that language. It's true. How would I answer that question? Have you thought about how you answer that question? Well, I said, biblically, I have to point to the truth. I have to have truth. Objective truth is key in answering this. Uh, when you think about it, if my answer to that question is subjective in any nature, it really isn't anything I can stand on. Um, so first and foremost, my answer, in order to be something that can truly weather any storm, it must be fully, objectively, totally true. Therefore, it must derive from God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And to me, this is why those promises found in Romans 8 give us kind of the most practically applicable answer to the question that I just posed. I, I understand, I think, ultimately our hope as Christians. You could you could answer that question in multiple ways. In terms of the ups and downs of life, I think there's kind of only two—well, I should say, really, I, I guess I sort of only think there's two ways you can go with this. You either have—your hope is in the cross um, because, you know, without— salvation, um, we're, we're returning to dust and we're doomed anyway. We're doomed to judgment. We can't stand before a perfect God uh, and account for the wrong things we've done. So there is, there is the one sense where you go, I hope in the cross. But, the, but what I'm, that's why I said practically applicable. Like within this life, that does give me hope ultimately, like overarching hope to press on. Um, and so I think that that's that's maybe the, the foundational aspect of of uh, of our hope. It's the over over overarching thing. But but practically applicable, I'm going to go to my second point, which I think is God's sovereignty and His promises. Um, so the two truths: the nature of God's sovereignty, and second, the nature of God's goodness and love. So God being sovereign, meaning He holds all things in His hands. He decrees all things to take place. And because of that, therefore, nothing that happens is random or without purpose. And that includes hardships that happen to me and to others. It includes good things that happen to me and others. We aren't left as Christians wondering what the ultimate reason is for things to happen. We can't really sit and go, why did this happen to me? Like that's a that's actually kind of a strange thing for a Christian to to say in the ultimate sense. We know it's obviously a very human thing to feel in the moment, but but really God tells us why he does what he does. He says all things are working for our good and for his glory. Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 are two passages you might want to go to um and to be reminded of that. And so for the Christian, there is great purpose for the things that happen in our lives. Ultimately, they're happening in order to sanctify us or to make us more like Christ. 
So any anything that happens in your life, well, and that's dual, dual again, sanctify us, glorify God. And, and they kind of go together because as we are made more like Christ through the trials of our life and the things that happen in our life, trials and successes, if we're made more like Christ, that's God's ultimate goal for us, we are going to bring him glory and we're going to find satisfaction in glorifying him by being more like Christ. So when you when something happens to you, when you think, well, why did this happen to me? Um, the answer ultimately is, well, one, God's being glorified. You can't you can't see that totally, but but he is in an ultimate sense. And it's not like the actual action of the awful thing is is like that that is glorifying to him. It's it's the overarching plan. Like murder is in and of itself not glorifying to God, but the murder of someone because it fits together in the ultimate purpose um, that God has decreed for this world. It has ultimate glory to God, but but. But again, let's not go down too much down that road. But essentially, essentially, what I want to make a point of is through the trials that are happening in your life, God is making you more like Christ. Anything that's happening to you, if you're going, why did this happen to me? The answer is God wants to sanctify you. He wants to sanctify you. He's strengthening your faith. He's strengthening your love. He's strengthening your knowledge of him. He's bringing you closer to him. He's trying to make you more like Christ. And the second thing, why does why does anything on this earth happens? Well, that's that goes back to it's it's only happening under the watchful sovereign decree of God, who has told us He works out all things for His glory and with a purpose to glorify Him and for your benefit. And it's beautiful because He is the only thing that is worthy of glory. You know, giving praise and glory to something is embedded in our nature. Is giving praise and glory to something is just embedded in our nature as humans. We want to worship something. We do. But but only one thing actually is worthy of worship, the one true God. And his decrees are done in order that his name might be praised. Even awful things, terrible things, unfair things, they're ultimately a part of God's larger purpose of bringing glory to himself. Uh, and so I kind of pose this question to, to you as listeners here, if you're still with me, does this mean that when my car breaks down in Nebraska, I should think this action is bringing glory to God? Or if my cousin is senselessly murdered by an estranged shooter, should I revel in the action itself because God was quote praised by it? No, I I don't think we need to be this thick skulled. I'd like to think that if I understand this thing, you can too. (laughs) Okay. There is a distinction between the action itself and its moral standing and the action itself within the place of God's sovereign plan for mankind to ultimately, through purposeful, meaningful actions, bring the elect to himself and to sanctify them. Of course, the action of senseless murder is evil. It goes against God's descriptive will. We do not praise the act in and of itself. But the next element is the basis for our hope. Just like in Genesis 50 50, or the crucifixion story itself, where an evil action was carried out, God simultaneously meant this evil action for ultimate good. And this comforts us because instead of us left to wonder, is God in control of this? Or did this just happen randomly? We always, always know that every action, movement, and thought has a purpose and a meaning behind it. The ultimate tragedy of the mother who has lost an unborn baby would be the realization that this event was completely void of any meaning. That it was simply a random, tragic, molecular incident that just so happened to bring her suffering. The hope of the Christian lies in the fact that this is not true. That this event only happened because of the the decree of an all-powerful God who loves his people. Which means, as tragic as the event was, it had meaning and purpose, ultimately to make 
you, the person, more like Christ and to glorify the God, the only one who deserves glory. So um, <clears throat> in purpose and meaning, you know, it seems like many people are okay suffering and undergoing a multitude of things. If there's this greater purpose or meaning at the end or behind the actions, we can think of it athletes being asked to do certain things in training. Uh, maybe it's not to be peaked perfectly for a race, do a really hard workout to go through kind of maybe some bad results or some hard, hard intervals or things like that um, and have some strange things, uh, those long over distance workouts, basketball practice in November, the last four hours or whatever. And, and you, you have the light at the end of the tunnel, right? There's a purpose or meaning. And we are okay suffering through something when we see the larger gain at the end of the tunnel. The problem is though, we can't always see everything. And in fact, I would argue, even when we think we see the gain at the end of the tunnel, we usually are only about 7% accurate. So when we can't see the larger gain, we think it isn't there, right? And God is the person who can see everything. So when by his powerful decree, something occurs in our lives, he already knows that it's for our good. He sees the ultimate gain at the end and we can't, but we have his word, which gives us the promise that it is there. It even says what that ultimate gain is in Romans eight. Uh, so our ultimate stance as Christians in terms of hope is that all things are going to turn out for our good and God's glory. There's literally nothing more hopeful than that. I'm going to be good. And God, the only thing worth being glorified is going to get the glory. <clears throat> so, oh, that's a lot right there, right? Oh, man. The, a massive skiologian's show. Hopefully, you made it all the way to the end and uh, enjoyed these thoughts, deep thoughts. I'm looking out my window right now, April 17th, and we've got my deck has like five inches of powder on it, which. It would be great if I knew that they had groomed something, but I'm I'm thinking that's very highly unlikely. I know they probably tried to shut down that stuff. So we'll see where we end up skiing today. Um, until next time, skiologians, uh, uh, Shovel Lake Public Radio, cedarskier.com. Go and check out our website if you liked this content. See you next time.